Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'm delighted to be interviewing Australian writer Ronnie Scott about his debut novel, The Adversary, which was published by Penguin Random House in April of this year. Dr. Ronnie Scott comes from Queensland, but has lived in Melbourne for some years. He has a PhD in creative writing from Melbourne University. And in 2007, at the very young age of 21, he founded a terrific literary magazine called The Lifted Brow. He lectures in writing and publishing at RMIT University in Melbourne, and his fiction and non-fiction writing has appeared in publications including the Sydney Review of Books, the highly esteemed Los Angeles Review of Books, uh, as well as the Australian, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Guardian. Welcome, Ronnie. It's lovely to have you here, virtually. Welcome. It's nice to be here. Thanks, Nicole. Ronnie, how would you describe your book to uh, our listeners? What's it about? Yeah, how how would I describe The Adversary? Um, so The Adversary is the story of uh, an extremely close friendship uh, between between two young gay men. Um, we don't we don't find out how old they are, but the narrator would be kind of twenty twenty one, and his best friend Dan, who he lives with, uh, would be a little bit older. And I think that uh, at the time that we meet them at the start of the book. Um, they've had this this kind of intensity to their friendship, um, which has possibly run its course. Um, they've been in this situation together for uh, for about a year and a half. Uh, they've they've really kind of kind of hit each other quite full on as people. I think this has happened before the book, um, and so at the time that we meet them, they've probably got to the point where their friendship has to change. And I think that they have both realized that, but at, at different paces and they articulate it in different ways and so the story of the adversary is really the story of whether and how they can change their friendship uh and and kind of the slow path uh and and the difficult and reluctant path uh towards changing that friendship and hopefully getting it into a form where it can survive terrific i'm really looking forward to asking some questions about that relationship which is central to the book uh, Ronnie, would you like to read an extract for us, please? Yes, I'm very happy to. Uh, okay, so I am going to read an extract that is not from the very, very start of the book. Uh, it's from about 45, it is 45 pages in. Uh, and it's it's a scene that probably won't take very much setting up, um, but a little bit. So when we meet these characters, the narrator uh, and his best friend, Dan, uh, Dan has started dating someone. That's uh, someone named Lachlan, uh, and that's part of how he signaled, I guess, to the narrator that um, that his life is moving into a different a different phase, or at least that's how the the narrator is interpreting it. There's a lot of kind of interpretation going on, uh, and the narrator is he's the source of the book's reluctance. He um he does not want to go anywhere or do anything, and he definitely does not want to change this friendship that has to change. And so this scene. Uh, at the Fitzroy pool, uh, he's he's sort of been dragged there. He's been cajoled there by Dan. Uh, and well, I guess the only other thing you need to know is that they've met a couple of other, other guys the night before and they will be at the pool. All right. Before I'd let my membership to Brunswick Baths expire, a trainer had written on the whiteboard. Remember, summer bodies are made in winter. 
It sounded like an old sword trotted out by some Scandinavian detective waiting for the lake to thaw and divulge its many bodies, creating a grisly wealth of summer overtime. Now though, climbing the bleachers at the Fitzroy pool, I saw it had a troubling meaning of a different kind. While I had been imagining this Scandinavian detective, other boys had been taking the advice as it was meant, girding themselves against the risk of sagginess and scrawniness and readying their bodies to greet the sunny world. Dan and Lachlan were already up there on the bleachers, perched on towers and gazing at me through their sunglass eyes. Neither of their towers looked particularly beachy, but instead seemed lifted from some fancy hotel in the same thick royal green as their dressing gowns. I couldn't imagine how warm and lovely it would be to cover myself in these towers in dead of winter, nor how awful it would be to do this after exiting the water on a too hot, windless day, sweating and chlorine and sticky with sunscreen, squinting up at the gym complex that hopped over the pool. I nodded to them, saw a space on the tier below them, reasonably man-sized, and made my way towards it. To spread a beach towel on these bleachers was to perform an art. It required a keen eye for towel-shaped opportunity and no undue squeamishness for disadvantaging others. As I dropped my own scrappy blue-green spotted towel and kicked at it to spread it, the shape beside my towel rolled over and revealed itself. Inscrutable behind its own pair of sunglasses, these ones dramatically large and bug-eyed. I paused mid-crouch. Hey, I said. He paused too. Hey, Chris L said. I looked up at Dan and Lachlan. We'd already said hi to each other, but I was getting into the groove. Hey, I said. Hey, Lachlan said. There was nothing left to say and nothing left to do but take off my shoes and shirt so as to complete the sense of exposure. There were more gaps on the bleachers than it looked from below, but it was hard with noise and dense with sizzly bodies. I was lucky to have found a space at all. Only when the American was halfway up the bleachers did I realize my terrible mistake. As if to reintroduce the idea of his Americanness, he was holding two burger shapes in Lord of the Fries wrappers, obviously having left the bleachers in order to pick them up. His towel draped off his shoulders in a pretense of modesty. I held my hands out, palms up. Sorry. Hey, no friends in the towel game, he said. This is Vivian, said Dan. We've met, said Vivian. Yeah, I said, rolling over and squinting up at Dan. We are friends in the towel game. So his name was Vivian, which I vaguely knew was one of those names that was actually old-timey masculine, like Shirley or Evelyn, and only in the current world did it sound slightly deranged. Dan was in one of his unimpressible moods. What's the towel game, he said, when it was entirely clear what we were talking about. It's this, I said, and said, Chris L, would you mind moving your towel? Chris L swooped his lenses over the bleachers over the day. I don't mind at all, he said. I smiled at Dan. Thank you, Chris L. And when he'd done so, I moved my towel, which made it kind of bunchy, but the towel and I were both still dry, so bunchiness was fine. There, I said, and Vivian set his own towel down next to me, stretched it out as far as possible, and sat down where he could. I was very impressed with Vivian and Chris L for going along with me, although I was unsure exactly what I'd been trying to demonstrate. And that's the towel game, I said, and refolded my legs.
Vivian passed a burger to Chris L over my body, causing just a drop of mayo to fall beside my chest. Ronnie, thank you. Before we start to talk about the adversary, I just would like to ask you a few questions about your writing career generally. So you have a PhD in creative writing and you teach creative writing at RMIT University. How has that academic background influenced you in your writing of your first novel, The Adversary? Oh, that's such a good question. I think uh, my, my PhD in creative writing, I should say, it was a slightly, uh, I guess all PhDs are strange, um, but mine was strange because I ended up writing about comics. Uh, and I'm not a I'm not a comics artist. I don't make comics. Uh, I went into it as someone who published a couple of short stories uh, and who published essays. And I thought that I would use it to write a novel. I think a lot of people do when they go into a creative writing PhD. But as you do, I spent my first year kind of just reading, um, reading as much as possible and and learning lots of kind of different approaches to writing and ideas that that I thought I would want to to explore. And I ended up really wanting to talk about space and time in narrative. And just the readings that I was doing led me to, uh, to a place where it was very, very natural to write about comics. Uh, it, just it was just a very sort of, uh, a very kind of fertile way to look at space, especially because you had visuals and text at the same time on a page. So I ended up kind of going down that rabbit hole and it didn't match up with my creative practice at all. It was all scholarly stuff but you're still thinking about things like scenes and atmosphere and, and how those elements work in different, in different mediums. And I think that, that like, sorry, this is a long answer to your question, but the, the way that that influences the novel is that you end up, I think, thinking, looking at scenes visually. Um, I know that uh, even though it's a, I, I think it's a fairly kind of cerebral and interior book, there's a lot of sensation in it. Uh, you're very, very close to this character's head. You can't always trust what he's thinking or feeling or saying. It's, it's pretty claustrophobic. There's still, I, I still kind of made an effort to describe scenes visually and atmospherically. And I think that comes from a sense that, that by kind of looking at a, at a landscape or looking at a, at a set of people kind of sitting around in a space, like at the Fitzroy pool there, you can get information about the way that their kind of little society works. I think that that one of the one of the most interesting things about teaching and writing at the same time, among things that are challenging, so because they you know they both use creative energy and uh, and uh, and and as well, I think that they use they use writerly energy because you're looking at other people's writing all the time when you're teaching a writing class. Um, I think that that one of the best things is just a reminder that whatever kind of creative knot you're in there's a way through it. And when you're in a writing workshop with people, uh, you know, say 15 of you looking at someone's story altogether, you can get 15 different approaches to solving that problem. And although I like, I would love to be a writer with infinite energy and flexibility and to be able to go home from teaching a writing class and be able to actually work on a book, I've never been able to do that. It, I'm generally pretty spent and can do admin and emails and things like that but still you're thinking about your work and the next morning you're able to kind of dive into it with these new perspectives and problem solving approaches. So I know that you've worked as an editor as well. You've worked for a number of publishers doing editing. Did you stop that other work while you were writing? Did you stop your teaching? Did you stop your editing while you were writing the novel? Uh, no, I mean, so, so I, I started the novel at the end of 2013 
And it's it's a really short book. It took a long time. And part of that was that I needed to figure out how to write a novel because um, it's kind of different from writing short stories and writing essays. But, but a lot of it was that I was doing other things. Uh, so I was probably the main thing I was doing in that time was trying to build a career in academia. So, you know, you finish a PhD and you, there was a point where I kind of just flew, flew around teaching at different places as much as I could. How did you find time to write a novel then in the, in the (laughs) gaps between your teaching and your editing? I reckon that that there are, there are phases in your life where you can do, I mean, you have choices, right? And I was in my mid to late twenties when I started it. And I didn't have I didn't have kids. I don't have kids now. Um, I had a very understanding partner, I guess. Uh, and you make social sacrifices, but also I think when you're working on a first book and when you know it's something that you want to do, you probably like the you know you're you're able to you're able to get up at four or five in the morning and work on it for a couple of hours. And I don't like I have I found that I can't do that now. I think that maybe that's something that your body can do in your twenties that it can't do afterwards or maybe you know when it's something that that you really want to do in order to kind of prove yourself or in order to gain skills or in order to move yourself to the next stage of your career I think probably a combination of all those things means that that there are things that you can temporarily do that that I think it's very hard to kind of to, to make yourself do again in the future at least that's what I've found working on another book after this. So you said it took you some years. I read that you did quite a lot of rewriting. Why was that? Why did you need to do so much rewriting? I needed to do so much rewriting because uh, uh, it was just the basic mechanics of what a novel is and does that I think I had to figure out. And it was really surprising to me that I had to figure it out because like, I was I was teaching that whole time and, and I was teaching and I was writing book reviews and when you're doing that, you're thinking all the time about the mechanics of a novel, but it is easier to apply it to other people's work than to than to your own. And I said at the start that the novel is about these two best friends, um, and I knew that that was going to be what the core of the novel was, but uh, but I didn't know what else what else it would be. I think I had to experiment. I, ha- I think I had to try to to change their friendship in lots of different ways, and a lot of them ended up being dead ends and. The thing that I that I kind of settled on, the thing that ended up letting me finish the book, was just introducing these four other characters who are very similar to them in some ways, uh, but at the same time, they offer kind of different models of, of 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 relationship, different models of friendship, and I think that having them be at the front of the story was the thing that helped me have the friendship at the at the back of kind of in the background as the thing that kind of pulsed along and pushed the story along. But it's often not the thing that you're focusing on in, in a scene in the book. Mm-hmm. And that seemed like the right way to write about friendship, which I think often develops and changes less in the way that, that a romantic relationship might um, or a relationship that's really kind of built on conflict and change. I think that friendship is often something that is really foundational to who we are but sometimes it, it changes in the background or it changes in unsaid ways. Uh, so it was experimenting with that. Ronnie, you've talked a bit about um, people who have influenced you with their writing. I know you've spoken about Anita Bruckner. Somebody else that you mentioned was Helen Garner, and I think you were asked to nominate a number of books that had changed you, and one of them that you picked was Helen Garner's Monkey Grip. I wondered how much of an influence that one had been on you uh, in relation to this book, The Adversary, also sent 
in Melbourne, also with a bunch of young people, some of whom are housemates, some of whom aren't. Would you like to tell me a little bit about about that? Was Monkey Grip an influence on you for this this book? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I uh, so I moved to Melbourne from Brisbane in two thousand and two thousand and eight, uh, and Monkey Grip and also Loaded by Christos Chalkis uh, were both books that I read not very long after I after I moved to Melbourne. And actually, when I was in Brisbane, I don't think I had a very close relationship with Australian literature. Full full stop. It's not like I read Jono by David Malouf until after I'd left Brisbane, and that's a pretty classic Brisbane text. But when I came here. I just had this appetite for for Melbourne literature. And I think that people in in Melbourne have an appetite for Melbourne literature as well. I think that people in Melbourne talk about Monkey Grip and and about Loaded uh, and about other other Melbourne texts probably more than people in other cities I've been in talk about foundational texts to those cities. Uh, So it was really kind of incredible to be discovering a city and discovering things that were written in and about that city at the same time. And Monkey Grip, you know, because it's it's set in the 70s and because it's this very kind of particular sort of bohemian social milieu that was in lots of ways quite different to mine, you you know, you're kind of going through this parallel experience that's not exactly the, it's not exactly what you expect of the place. And it doesn't exactly speak to the place that you're, that you're living in, but it, but it kind of gets you halfway there. And it's, so you have this interesting experience of letting it inform your sense of the place's history it's your sense of the place is present, but also kind of getting this access to another person's voice and mind. So Monkey Grip was, yeah, it really kind of blew me open. Let's talk then about the two main characters in the book, the narrator who's unnamed, so I'll just keep referring to him as the narrator, <laughs> and Dan. Let's start, first of all, with the narrator. We know that he's a university student. You've mentioned that he's in his early 20s. I think we gather that from the reading. I wanted to ask, he's... he's I assume he's studying literature. He has literature quotes on his dating profiles. And we'll come in a moment to talk about how he first met Dan. But am I right in that? Is he studying literature at university? I think that he would be studying literature. Yes. Yeah. What's he like as a person, Ronnie? Tell us about the narrator. Oh, he, I, I think that he is a difficult person. Um, I think that he's a difficult person who is difficult in a in a way that is possibly more forgivable in my view because of his age i think that he's it's really clear that he's that he's figuring himself out um and i think that uh that one of the enjoyable things about writing this character was that he he has an attitude he and he has an attitude problem you could say as well he's he's fairly kind of quick to judge other people but fairly insecure and fairly um, I think bruisable. Um, he's he's bruisable. It's he, he enters a social situation and he, um, yeah, is is ready to, to 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 I think ready to be changed by that situation and by what how other people act around him and how other people feel about him. But he also is fairly not. He's not self aware. Um, he doesn't he doesn't know that he's being changed in that way. I think he's a bit slow on the uptake. Uh, this is a thing that Helen Garner's characters say in a couple of her different books is, is that they're quick on the uptake. I think he's a bit slow, but he's, he's sort of literally smart. He, he, does, he likes books, he likes analysis, but he's probably a bit inexperienced. So he's, yeah, he's, he's difficult, but he's on the verge of change. And he's also quite a lonely person, isn't he? Apart from Dan, he doesn't really have a lot of friends. 
No, he doesn't have a lot of friends. He's a, he says at the start of the book that he's not a shut-in and he's not really, but he's pretty close. And I think it's one of those denials that's meant to make you think you're a little bit of a shut-in. Yes. And he likes taking showers. What's that about? He takes a <laughs> lot of showers. He takes a lot of showers. I, I think the reason that, that I had him take a lot of showers was that I wanted, uh, I wanted to give a sense of, um, oh, not of pointlessness, but of, of listlessness. Um, I wanted to give a sense of someone kind of stewing in their own juices. And I guess a shower is a little bit the opposite of that because it's cleaning you off. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, for me, the shower is where I think. It's also where I go, um, yeah, to unknot problems sometimes. Uh, it's also just a thing that we do at, at the borders, at the edges of our day. And I like the sense of this character whose entire day is made up of those brackets and borders and edges. Um, he's sort of, he's very, like, it, he's, a, he's indulgent in some ways. And it's one of those indulgences that you can, that, that he can afford because he's a student and doesn't work. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's what accounts for the showers, I think. I want to pick up on that pointlessness point. When we first meet him, he denies that his existence is pointless. He says that it does have a point. And the point is to read books, take a break from study and stare all day at Grinder. Does that pretty much sum up his existence at the time that we meet him, just as uh, summer's about to start and there are changes happening in this friendship with Dan, which we'll come to in a moment? Yeah, that does sum up his existence. And he's thinking a lot about Dan. I mean, thinking about what the point of his existence is, uh, he doesn't. He doesn't sort of say this at the start of the book. I think he comes to realize this. But Dan really gives him focus. Um, you know, Dan is the point of his existence. It's, it's this kind of project of unpacking this other person. I, I guess also, like there's there's a slacker element to the um, to the book that I thought was a little bit important to have sitting there in the background, even though it's not explicitly sort of I, I guess analyzed in the book because often. I think when, because the book is about a minority, it's about, um, it's about young gay men. And I think often when people are thinking about the point of people in society, they come up with economic explanations for what they are doing in society, or they're talking about the improvements of society. I think that gay men throughout history have sort of sometimes been in positions where they, where they can um, argue for their cultural value as well. Uh, I think that we see that casually all the time when we see sort of gay best friend characters whose job it is to give advice or to improve someone culturally. So I kind of like the idea of this character who sits around and has showers and, uh, and looks at Grinder and thinks about his best friend and thinking, well, what is the value of that person? Um, and what, what role does he play in society? If he never leaves his house and goes outside, he's still a person. All right, let's talk about Dan now. Um, I won't get you to talk about the relationship with Lachlan. We're going to move on to that. But tell us just about Dan. What's he like as a person? Dan is, well, okay, keeping in mind that we see the narrate, we see Dan through the narrator's eyes, right? So we, we see a pretty idealised version of Dan, and I think that we probably see things about Dan as the book goes on that contradicts what we think and know about Dan. He's a... He's known to the narrator at the start of the book as a bit of an iconoclast, as, a, as someone who is rebellious and intelligent and uncompromising, I think is the word the narrator uses. Um, you know, the narrator first meets him being cool in a lecture theatre and challenging the, the, the lecturer. That's a, that's a lovely description of that first meeting. Could you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so he he sees Dan and he's attracted to him, as I think a lot of gay men are to gay men who end up being their friends. Uh, it's not always a sexual or romantic thing. It's sometimes kind of the the disguise of of what a friendship, what ends up being a friendship. He sees him in the lecture theater. I think he comes in in week four or week five, so he hasn't been in class before. And uh, there was a draft where he kicked his feet up. I don't think that he that he still has his his feet kicked up in the book. Uh, and he's drunk. He's drunk. He's drunk and it's the daytime. And uh, the lecturer is, ta- is saying, so you're an Austin or you're a Bronte. Uh, so he's talking about literary dyads. And uh, I think Dan digs into the gender politics of that statement and says, oh, of course, they have to be in competition because they're lady novelists. Uh, and then I think he calls the lecturer a, uh, an, a communist or an anti-communist or, or, or one of those two things. He's against the lecturer, whatever he is. Uh, and and the narrator has just never met or seen someone like that. He's come from a, uh, a, a small coastal town uh, outside of Melbourne, and uh, and he devotes his energies to tracking down where Dan is and who he is, and uh, and sort of fails to make a strong impression on Dan when they first meet. But it's you like know, he he really looks up to Dan from the word go that he's met someone who's got the nerve to walk into a lecture for the first time and and challenge the lecturer. So that's his that leaves a very strong impression for him. Yes. And, and you say that we see Dan through the narrator's eyes, but in fairness, I think we also see a lot of him through his own conversation and through a lot of the dialogue with the narrator and with other characters. And he's a pretty sharp, smart, funny, clearly fairly charismatic, attractive man. So, yes, we do see him through the narrator's eyes, but I think even objectively speaking, most of us get all of those things. We can see what's attractive about him. Right. So when they meet, well, when we meet them, when the novel opens, they've been living together, as you said, for 18 months. Um, It's the narrator's first experience of living out of home. Um, Dan has lived out of home before, but the narrator hasn't. How would you describe their relationship at that point? When we first see them at the beginning of the novel, they've been flatting together for 18 months. What sort of a relationship is it? What are things like between them? Yeah, I think that that's what the narrator is trying to puzzle out at the start of the book, right? He's trying to figure out, uh, are we as close as, as we once were? Have we, have we ever been as close as I thought we were? Uh, am, I, am I a burden to you at this stage in your life? Uh, are, is there something that you want me to do or some way that you want me to behave? I think he feels a bit like Dan's experiment. Um, he feels a bit like, uh, well, I mean, D- Dan... When we meet when we meet him in flashback, he is very kind of rebellious and yes, kind of sharp and charismatic, but also kind of abrasive in some ways. And I think when we meet him at the start of the book, he's uh, he's a bit more professionalized and a little bit more more kind of together in in some ways. And I think that that the narrator has been blindsided by this. He feels um, he feels umbrage about it I think and he feels as though there's something that he must catch up to so I think when we meet them at the start of the book Dan's life has changed in some really overt ways and the narrator uh, just doesn't know what's hit him. There's a lovely quote um, which you have and remembering that at this stage when we meet them the narrator is still at university he's a little bit younger and Dan's already out working full-time he's got a, a job in interior design the narrator says this I was also an agent of Dan, a captive of his, really. I went where he wanted me and did, and for a long time, and in this way, and did what he wanted, and for a long time, in this way, 
I was happy. What does that tell us about their relationship? Is it an equal one? It is not an equal relationship. Um, but I also think that the narrator is less self-aware than Dan is. And as such, he probably doesn't know what he contributes to Dan's life. Um, I also think that Dan, for all his, uh, his kind of verbal acuity, he, he does not express his feelings very directly or very sincerely until kind of later in the book, I guess, as their relationship develops. So I think that, that the narrator probably, yeah, probably isn't aware of, of the point of their friendship. He doesn't know what the last kind of year and a half of their lives has meant. But definitely he looks up to Dan and definitely Dan is an advisor. And as housemates, they do really nice things for each other, don't they? Could you tell us about the index cards? They do do nice things for each other. So, uh, you know, when they, well, that's kind of a self-preservation thing, but it's a nice little uh, little thing that they have going where if they go out for a hookup for, to someone's house and they feel, you know, or, or to mitigate the risk of um, whatever potential risk there is in that, they write down the address on an index card and they leave it at the foot of their bed so that, uh, in case anything happens to them, uh, they will be, um, they could be discovered, or at least there's some kind of breadcrumb trail. But also they destroy them when they come home safe so that the other person doesn't ever need to know where they've gone um, unless absolutely necessary. So there's intimacy, but there are boundaries and kind of clear formal boundaries there. There's also something really nice in the in the balance between them. At one point, we learned that Dan pays $50 a week more rent, even though his room is only a tiny bit smaller than the narrator's. And he was doing that even before he started working full time. What, what does that tell us about them and the relationship? Yeah, it, well, it, I, I think that, that, yeah, that's, I think that's a really nice example of the power imbalance, right? Because the narrator is clearly under Dan's protection. Um, he's clearly, uh, He's, it, it's a, it, it's not an equal partnership. It's not like he can walk into his house and feel like a, like a respected equal or like a respectable equal. Um, I think uh, there's a sense that he's kind of there, um, there at, at, at the pleasure of Dan. But also, uh, you would think that if, that if he's paid for um, by Dan, then, then he must contribute something to Dan's life as well. Uh, you know, what is Dan getting out of that? And so that's where the mystery probably comes from, is, it, is to what extent are you being kind and charitable versus to what extent um, am I giving you something mysterious and ineffable that I can't identify myself? So we've got a fairly, fairly good sense now of how the narrator feels about Dan. Let's have a little look at how Dan feels about the narrator. When we first meet them, Dan and his boyfriend, Lachlan, are really encouraging the narrator to get out of the house, to, to get him to come to a party with them, to get them to come to the pool with them. And the narrator says that he's, he wants to send me out of the house in search of love and friendship. What's that about? Hmm. It's, well, this is the question. So is, it, is he being sent out of the house in search of love and friendship as a purely altruistic thing, um, as something that will that will ben clearly benefit him. And I think it's true that it will clearly benefit him to get other influences. Or is it Dan sort of trying to shake him off his tail a little bit? Or is it an attempt to bring them closer? Because if Dan is in this, this kind of, this relationship now with Lachlan, who you mentioned before, then will the narrator, by getting some sort of, uh, you know, commensurate relationship in his life, 
will they be able to, to, to recover some of that former closeness? Is that Dan's intention? We're not quite sure. So let's talk a little bit now about Dan and Lachlan and the impact of that relationship on the relationship between the narrator and Dan. Tell us a little bit about Lachlan. What does he do and what's he like? Uh, Lachlan, is, uh, Lachlan is a piece of cardboard in the opinion of the narrator uh, when we meet him at the start of the book. He, uh, he was met, Dan met him at a self-checkout machine. Uh, when the machines broke, it's meant to be sort of a, an awkward kind of meet cue. Uh, the, the narrator is not sure of why Lachlan, who was in this professional, kind of young professional class, as, as well as Dan, um, what, what he could possibly contribute to, to their household or to, or to Dan. He doesn't see what Dan sees in him. He sees Lachlan as, as plank-like. I said cardboard, but a wooden plank is how he describes him. He has good posture. He has a ramrod posture. Uh, and he is more or less kind of spiritually inaccessible to the narrator. The narrator does not understand what makes him tick at all. And I think that you get the sense that the opposite is true as well. So early on in the piece, the narrator quite explicitly tells us that he doesn't like Lachlan, but he says that's completely unsayable. A little bit later on, he calls him, he says, he's just nobody. Um, and he says he's not the sort of, uh, the narrator seems to be justifying it to himself saying, well, I, I wouldn't mind if Dan had a boyfriend, but I would expect the boyfriend to be quite exceptional. But this guy is just a nobody. Yes, I think that uh, that... Well, to me, that's, that's a feeling that I've had in my life where, you know, there's someone who's really valuable to you and you don't understand, you know, you, you kind of meet this other version of yourself or you, you meet kind of, uh, I don't know, I, I, I can relate it to experiences where uh, maybe there's a friend of a friend who, or, or a colleague who I, who I think is going to be really, um, you know, really inspiring or really, uh, really funny or, or incredibly kind or whatever it is that, that this other person sees in them. And then you meet them. And it's not that they don't have those qualities. It's that you don't have the special point of access that that person has to them, or you don't have the context or they don't behave in the same way around you. So they're, they're a kind of mystery. And I think that this is the first thing, the first time that that's happened to the narrator. And because this has just happened to the narrator and because he has such a dog in the game, um, he feels so, uh, so possessive and so replaceable. Uh, and he, I think, probably has to get some, some self-esteem, um, some of his self-esteem together uh, so, that, so that, you know, this sense that, that Dan has someone else in his life is not uh, a referendum on their friendship or a referendum on the value of the narrator. But he's kind of going through all of that. And poor Lachlan is just standing in the kitchen, minding his own business, enjoying his relationship, as is Dan at some point but the narrator kind of has all of this stuff going on uh, and he projects it onto Lachlan. I thought something that you showed, I mean, one of the issues, one of the things I was asking you is how has the arrival of Lachlan on the scene changed the relationship between Dan and the narrator? And there are a couple of things that you show us in quite a subtle way. You see that the narrator and Dan can still be affectionate. There's one scene where they're at a beach house where the narrator quite instinctively throws his arms around Dan we see dialogue between them. There's still a lot of the same playful banter that there always has been. I thought that raised a question as to, objectively speaking, how much the arrival of Lachlan on the scene had actually changed their relationship. Certainly right. in the narrator's eyes, it's a big change. But I wondered if, objectively speaking, it really was such a change. That's a really good question. I think that uh, that that 
probably the the thing that um, hmm, I, I guess the thing that that he feels as if he's losing the most with Lachlan being on the scene is that Dan isn't in the house all the time, but it's coincided as well with Dan having a job and with Dan not being at the same university as him uh, and probably with Dan developing these other interests as well. So I think probably a lot of these, these kind of fears have been localized in Lachlan uh, in a way that, that doesn't necessarily, um, yeah, that doesn't necessarily speak to his actual effect on, on their life. I'm not sure. The narrator at one point says that he feels like his friend has been substituted with a boyfriend. And I was wondering, do you think that that is a common thing where you have a platonic friendship either between two gay men or between a, um, two heterosexuals and one of the two finds a romantic partner? Is it this sort of rupture and this sort of adjustment a common thing that occurs when there is a change like that in a platonic relationship? I think that it's something that speaks, yeah, I, I, I think not necessarily within gay or queer or straight relationships, but definitely within relationships and friendships at probably at this age. I think that it's, that it's probably something that doesn't happen to you more than a couple of times where a, a change in somebody else's life uh, kind of gets, gets at you, like gets at, gets at the guts of you in that way. Um, I, I think that, that that's probably something that you learn some pretty clear and pretty pretty deep lessons from. Uh, yeah, so I, so yes, I think it's a common thing um, because it's a, it's a sense that you've found something and found something special that you that you didn't know was out there. Like I think that you know when you you asked before about how he felt about Dan when he first met Dan, that's uh, that's not it's not it's not as though he would have dreamed of a friend like Dan when he was living at home or in high school. It, it's, it's something that he found and that, that feels like, uh, like was exclusive for him or was, uh, was something that, that was felt mutually as well. And I think that, of course, you know, you live a little bit and you get a little bit more experience and you maybe go through more of those ruptures yourself or you have experiences where something new comes into your own life, but it doesn't necessarily displace something that's already there. I think that all of that perspective probably precludes this kind of feeling from happening again. So I wanted to capture the intensity of that. The novel's called The Adversary. In what sense do you think are Dan and the narrator each other's adversary? I love the word adversary. And you come from the law, don't you? That's my this background, is your, yes. <laughs> this is your background. I love the word adversary because it doesn't imply, it, it doesn't imply something negative, I don't think. It doesn't imply that there's a good guy and a bad guy, uh, you know, and I love, this is my very, very layman's idea of, of, of legal procedure, but I love this idea that in an adversarial system, the truth is somewhere in the middle and you, you're, you're both doing a service to, to society by arguing as hard as you can on either side. And I think that that's the sense that I wanted their, their conversations to have. I wanted, I wanted there to be a sense that, Yes, they're kind of challenging each other and tearing each other down sometimes, but it's all in the service of having a closer relationship and it's in the service of, of helping each other find out more about themselves um, and about who they are and about how they feel about the world. So an adversary, ideally, is someone that's equal but opposite. And I think that that's what the narrator and Dan give each other. You mentioned at the start that there are four other characters in this novel. It's really a novel about six people obviously the, the very much the main theme is the relationship between Dan and the narrator. But you started to tell me at the beginning, and I'm sorry, I think I might have cut you off, but 
what role do the other four characters play in relation to that central concern that is the relationship between Dan and the narrator? Tell us a little bit briefly about those other characters. What are they like? And, yeah, what, what role do they play in the novel? Yeah, thank you. So uh, so there's Lachlan, who we've talked about a bit already, who is, is Dan's boyfriend. Um, there's the two people who we met quickly in the pool scene as well, actually, uh, which I read. So there's, there's Chris L, who lives with Lachlan, uh, and he is someone that the narrator is, uh, is kind of intimately but, but, but not so intimately familiar with from his presence on social media. He's someone that the narrator knows of and is interested to learn, lives with Lachlan. Um, He's a he's a different sort of person. He's he's less verbal than Dan and the narrator, um, but he's very visual. He's probably a little bit younger than both of them, uh, but he's very centered in in a way that that maybe the narrator isn't. So he has kind of a different set of characteristics. Um, he's very kind of intriguing and repellent to the narrator at the same time at the start of the book, and then there is Vivian, uh, who is the main romantic interest for the narrator. He's a guy who's here from America, uh, or here for the summer anyway, and he uh, he sort of walks into into this set of this set of friends, which I think he experiences as a set of friends, but he of slightly younger men, but he doesn't know that that the narrator and Chris L and Lachlan and Dan have quite a fraught and quite quite a tenuous sort of setup. So he's he's not only a disruptive and attractive presence, Vivian, this this older man but he is someone who is disruptive to something that is very disruptible already. And uh, then there's a sixth character who has less to do with the, with the other five, really. Um, he's nameless, but he is someone that the narrator meets at the very, very start of the book. Um, he gives him a lift to, um, to Fitzroy from Brunswick. And he, the narrator has met him through, uh, through Grindr, and, uh, and he keeps recurring the book in different ways uh, and is, is sort of representative of the, the infinite mystery and interestingness uh, and difficulty of, of other people. So he, he sort of becomes a, this kind of recurring motif through the book. But the, the roles that, that these four people play, yeah, I think even though we encounter them in different sexual and romantic situations, reasonably often or tense, tense situations that kind of could go that way, I wanted the reader to have the experience, kind of as you go through the book, of recognizing that they that they offer different social um, different social models, uh, different ways of relating to to gay men that are not quite so incredibly close and potentially unsustainably close as the one between the narrator and Dan. Because the um, narrator really has a relationship of sorts with all of them, doesn't he? Possibly yes. with the exception of Lachlan, but with with the other three, with Vivian, with the Richmond man, and with Chriselle, he he develops a relationship of sorts with each of them. Though none of those relationships go anywhere near approaching the depth of the relationship that he has with Dan. There's almost a sense that he's he's maybe starting to look for that, to realise that he needs to he needs to make more friends, he needs to find other deeper relationships, and he's sort of testing the waters with these other three men. Yes, he's finding out how to do that. Um, I think that that I had a lot of fun writing very awkward scenes of dialogue uh, because the narrator does is not very practiced with uh, with meeting people or with with scoping out 
you know, in a situation with another person, what's going to, what's going to come of that situation, you know, especially if it's not going to be something that's just a, a brief encounter. So I think his efforts to develop these kind of deeper friendships or, or broader friendships, at least, I, I think that he sort of, uh, uh, kind of zigzag, again, zigzags his way towards that. The novel's set over eight weeks of a long, hot, sticky Melbourne summer. It starts on the 30th of November. It goes through December and January. There's some interesting observations that the narrator makes about summer. At one point he says it was traditionally a time of public appearances and self-discoveries. And at another time he says there's an expectation that summertime be fun. It's almost as if he feels that there is a pressure on him in summertime. How significant is it for the novel as a whole that it is set in summer? Yeah, I, I thought, well, it's practical to start with because it, it took me a while to figure out a, a way that this character could be in the world that uh, that would allow him to kind of, you know, be in the house having showers, going out of his own skin a little bit, right? Uh, and so that sort of determined the suburb where he would live and the time of year it would be and the stage of his life it would be. And there was a little bit of trial and error to get there. But also I liked it. I love this idea of summer as something that... Uh, that's, that, that has a set of expectations because when you think about it, it's re- it's quite odd um, in some ways that you can enter into a season and that you there are ways that you're that you're meant to behave. I, I, that's one of the things that strikes you so strongly when you move to Melbourne from from somewhere else uh, is that you know yes it's a cliche that Melbournians are obsessed with the weather but also there's there's a, a way that, that social groups seem to behave in winter that they don't behave in summer. There's a there's expected points of focus in your life. Uh, and I think that that for someone who is just discovering his way of being in the world, that's experienced as, a, as something that's quite, um, uh, that, that's almost like a directive. Um, you know, he, he feels as though he's got this summertime directive. That he yeah, you will have a good time. You, you will, will look good, good and you will have a good time. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly how he feels. And he, but he also, you know, uh, understandably kind of pushes against that. But I still wanted the book to feel fun and summery while also feeling curmudgeonly and peevish about the summertime. Um, I, I like that opportunity to have a bit of a push-pull. Something interesting about the book is that there aren't a lot of sex scenes. And the sex scenes that there are are fairly, how can I put it, tame, I suppose, for want of a better word, without in any way being offensive. I read that it originally had more sex scenes, but that you took them out. And I was wondering why that was. Yeah, I I took them out because they were they were they were sex scenes that that would sometimes advance the ideas or they would change the relationships in the in the um in the book, but they didn't feel right for the character. Um, this character is so stuck, he's so stuck, and uh, yeah, and I I thought that it it wouldn't make sense for him to have kind of a lovely fun experience with another person. He's very self-sabotaging. He's very self-sabotaging and he uh, he just, he needs to, to find what he's looking for through a way that he, uh, like as in, as in what he's looking for in relationships and in life through means that he hasn't discovered yet. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really, I mean, I've been in a, in a relationship for a very long time. It's been a long time since I've been in this kind of grinder-ish dating set. But the most one of the most interesting things about it to me was always that that you would meet friends through it. Um, or that you would meet meet kind of uh, relationships that you you would not have been able to predict how they would play out. And 
and how you would relate and respond to that person in a couple months time. Um, but, but definitely the, um, the ostensible thing that, that you're doing and the thing that, you're, that people are doing most of the time is meeting up to date and have sex. So I like the idea of having relationships that could kind of grow, like burst out of that, I guess, or, or struggle to, to burst out of that. So, so the sex scene was something, was, was an opportunity to develop character um, an opportunity to create comedy. So I really mm-hmm. wanted, I, <laughs> I wanted them to be There's awkward. quite a lot of, com- that's it, awkward's definitely the word that yeah. sprang to my mind. There is a lot of comedy in the, the few sex scenes that there Good. are, definitely. And awkward <laughs> is absolutely the word. <laughs> Ronnie, I wanted to ask you just to, to finish up about something that you said about this book. Somebody asked you about it and what you wanted it to be. You said, I tried to imagine a very narrow subset of gay male life and use this narrow point of view to think about some structures that govern life in our society more generally. What structures were they? What were you referring to there? Right. Um, I think one of the things that I was really interested in doing in this book and that I knew quite early on I would, I would try to do was to talk about gender politics and to talk about gender politics through, you know, as you said, this very kind of small subset um, of men. Uh, And I I am always really interested in the relationships that I have with gay men, how they kind of translate and reflect and get wrong and play with and kind of work with um, relations that that you see occurring between men and women or between women and women or straight men and straight men. I think that it's really wonderful to have uh, to have these things that these relationships that kind of grow. Uh, uh, it, it's it's wrong to say they they don't grow on the backs of of other kinds of relationships that we see in media or read in books, but but they grow kind of within the context of of different kinds of usually straight relationships. And thinking about this character as someone who reads a lot of novels, and the, you know the way the book starts with with mentioning Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte quite early on and thinking that, you know, I work in a form that has hundreds of years of history, but, but gay and queer relationships are often really coded or really buried. Uh, you know, you have a romantic structure, you have a way that a story will develop. And I thought it was really interesting to, um, to try to tell a gay friendship story within those structures. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that comes into it when you're thinking about, about the other structures that, that are overt in the character's life, like you were talking about the expectations of summertime, for example. Um, it's interesting to think about the expectations of how a friendship, how a friendship should go, um, what role it should play in your life versus romantic relationships or versus work or versus comfort with being alone. You know, all of these things have their place, but what place does friendship have? And can it, can it kind of live or develop in that same way? So those were the structures that I was really thinking about. Terrific. Well, it's a wonderful novel about friendship. Congratulations. And just before we finish, I'd like you to share two pieces of advice with uh, our listeners. What have you read recently that you have loved? And what are you really looking forward to reading? Yeah, okay. Uh, the, the thing that I've read um, most recently um, that, I, that I've kind of, I've, I've loved it in a, in, a, in a sort of uncomplicated way for, because it has been sort of pure, pure candy, but really smart candy. Right. Uh, Tell and me. It's been, it's been perfect for isolation. Uh, it's, it's Rodham by Curtis 
in films. I just read it and absolutely loved it myself. <laughs> I just, I wish we could talk about the ending on this podcast, but we, but we can't. Um, but it's just been perfect for this kind of isolated time that, that we're going through uh, because it, uh, it's very easy to read, but the ideas underneath it are really quite, quite roiling and quite challenging in some ways. Mm. And it's a book that I've thought about kind of endlessly for the, for the, a week or so since I finished it anyway. Yeah, I so can highly really endorse that one as well. I, I loved it too. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very glad. I, I want to talk to more people about it. I think it'd be a great one for a book club as well. Uh, yeah, and, and what am I most looking forward to reading? Uh, I have I have a book next to my bed that I don't know very much about, but I'm actually going to read it after we do this recording or I'm going to start it. It's called What Good Are the Arts by John Carey. Uh, have you read it? Very, no, but very topical at the moment when we're seeing our arts industry so badly hit by this pandemic and we're all hoping that as everything else gets back to normal that there will be an arts culture for us to return to. Yeah, that sounds like a very, very important book. Tell me a bit yes. about it. Yeah, I, uh, so it'll be a little bit speculative because I haven't started it yet, but, I, but it was published kind of 10 or 15 years ago. I think he's a British writer. Uh, and I think that it's it's a fairly kind of deep dive into the sense that um, uh, I think it, it received wisdom about the arts. So, so some of it would be things like the arts don't have economic or cultural value. And he sort of digs into that. But I think that he probably also digs into things that we sometimes casually say about the arts, like the arts are so good for you or they create empathy. And I think that he really plays with those ideas uh, and Oh, this is what I'm expecting. I might be be widely disappointed <laughs> when I read the book, but I think that it that it's an analysis of the ways that we talk about the arts. What good do they really do, and how do we know? Um, so I'm expecting to be reassured in some ways and challenged in others by this book. That sounds fantastic, Ronnie. Thank you so very much for talking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. That was really fun. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.